Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we will travel from survival to success, exploring resilience and the immigrant experience. My first guest is Professor Justine Gatt, who is a lead scientist of the Gatt Wellbeing and Resilience Group at Neuroscience Research Australia, also known as Neura, and the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Dr. Gatt obtained her PhD in psychology at the University of Sydney. Professor Gatt currently leads several national and international projects in resilience and well-being. Her work has been recognized by multiple awards, including the Worldwide University Network Success Story, the Commonwealth Health Minister's Award for Excellence in Health and Medical Research, and the National Health Medical Research Council's Excellence Award for Top-Ranked Career Development Fellowship. Professor Gatt also serves as an editorial member for several scientific journals. And Professor Gatt, I am excited to have a conversation with you today about your research and particularly focusing on the immigrant experience. And I know you have studied the migrant youth immigration process in several countries. But first, I want to welcome you and then talk a little bit about your initial research in this area. Oh, hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh. I'm um, very excited about this. I am excited to uh, to share your work with our listeners, because it's my understanding that when you first focused your research on the neuroscience underpinnings of well-being and resilience, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yes. What we do is we lead a research program that we try and understand the neuroscience, well-being and resilience so that we know the best ways to promote it. So um, we've been doing this kind of research for over 10 to 15 years, but where it all started was um, a twin project that we actually started in 2009 in um, Sydney, Australia, um, and it was originally led by Professor Leanne Williams, who actually has now moved to Stanford. Um, but the whole aim of the project was to um, collect a whole bunch of measures on 1,600 healthy adult twins. And we are now um, um, observing these twins over 10 years. And so we've collected originally measures in terms of their genetics, and um, their environmental life experiences, as well as they did a bunch of surveys and neurocognitive tests. And then some of the twins came into our lab and they did some EEG and MRI brain scans. And um, over time, what we're planning to do now is um, examine how these twins who were originally healthy, how they have actually changed in their mental health over time so that we can actually derive these resilience trajectories and then map those 
profiles onto their actual brain function and cognitive function and life experiences. This is fascinating because imagine you have twins who are born and raised in the same home, so essentially exposed to the same early environments, and then to study how their lives, how their paths might have differed and how their lives developed as a result of not only just genetics, but their environmental exposures. Yes, that's exactly right. And all of the twins, um, they, all of the twins were actually reared together. So they were both identical and non-identical twins that we compared. But the same families, raised in the same family units. Yeah, that's right. And talk a little bit about those findings. I mean, I find this fascinating where you can have twins or siblings in the same family raised together, and then one will report themselves as being quite content and happy, and the other might say they've had a miserable life experience. Yes. So um, I guess the interesting thing with twins, so why we compare them, so we have identical twins, and then we have the non-identical twins. So with the identical twins, they have 100% genetic similarity, whereas the non-identical twins have 50% genetic similarity. So they are genetically as similar as a normal sibling pair, but both types of twins share their environment. So they share, um, you know, as they're growing up. And by actually comparing those known differences, we can actually model how our genes and environment actually uh, modulate different relationships. From the research, I know what what other research says about the impact of genetics versus environment in our happiness or our our subjective well-being. What did your study reveal? Well, one of the first key outcomes from the study was we actually developed a new scale to measure well-being called the Compass W Wellbeing Scale. And I guess the reason we created it was we wanted to have a measure of well-being that comprised both key elements of well-being, so that is both hedonia and eudaimonia. And then using the scale in the twins, we were able to establish um, uh, quite a few new findings. So, for example, with twins, you can look at the heritability of different traits. So that's how much our genetics versus our environment actually contributes to that particular trait. And in our twin study, we found that well-being was actually 48% heritable. So that means almost, um, you know, it's almost 50-50 gene environment contribution to our well-being. Wow. Which is different than some of the earlier research on the subject in terms of genetic impact on well-being. Yes, there are other studies that have... um, Similarly, looked at the heritability of well-being, and they found lower estimates. Yes, um, it could be down to thirty percent even, um, but it really depends on the on the way they measured well-being. So, did they actually look at um, both hedonia and eudaimonia, or just one form of well-being? And let's define those two because some of our listeners uh, might not be familiar with those terms. Yes, sure. So, hedonia is. Um, what usually is defined as happiness um, or positive affect and negative affect, as well as life satisfaction. Whereas eudaimonia are the attributes that we possess to um, attain, I guess, more 
a more meaningful life. So it can include things like autonomy, mastery, um, and just a sense of life purpose and self-worth. So you could look at it, another way of looking at it would be the hedonic happiness, you know, or hedonic well-being would be sort of that short-lived bursts that, that, that we get in our lives, whereas eudaimonia might be that the sustainability factor of our well-being? Yeah, you could see it that way. And you kind of need both of them because they feed each other, yeah. as you can imagine. So, you know, if, you, if you're happy one moment, it's not going to be sustainable if you don't feel like you're living um, your life to its fullest potential. And let's talk a little bit about how this work translates to helping people have greater resilience. If we're able to have mastery over ourselves and, and self-regulation and self-awareness, does that allow us to weather the storms of life when they appear and then bounce back better? Yes, that's exactly right. So the concept of well-being and resilience are um, very much related, but they are different concepts. So whereas well-being is more of the state of your um, more positive mental health, resilience is actually the process of positive adaptation following some sort of adversity. So it's not only um, sometimes there is a misconception that resilience is simply certain personality traits or coping strategies such as grit or, um, you know, having tenacity about just, just working through a problem. But it's a lot more than that. It's, it's you know, it's a coping mechanism that we might use, um, but it's also the resources that we might access outside the person. So it could be, you know, um, seeking financial support or medical support or, community or spiritual support to actually um, achieve your sense of positive adaptation following whatever form of um, stress or adversity that you're actually dealing with. I often will talk with clients about the difference between a happy person and an unhappy person and the traumas that the average human will endure in their lifetime and disappointments and, and obstacles. And the difference between the two groups as being the ability to cultivate resilience and um, the sense of being uh, bouncing back and being better for having gone through the experience because of what was learned about the self and the tr transformation and transcendence of those difficult experiences. Because the way I look at it, like, difficult things are going to happen to every one of us. It's coming at some point in our lives. And what defines the person who's able to be more happy versus less happy when these things happen? Yes, I um, completely agree. I, um, there is this phenomenon, I guess, that we refer to as the um, stress inoculation effect, um, where if you're exposed to minor um, but controllable stresses, you are given the opportunity to actually learn how to cope with it so that the next time you deal with the same sort of situation, you have all the kind of tools you need to actually um, adapt to that particular stressor um, more effectively. And so I guess that's kind of the idea of what you were just suggesting where you know, we all are going to face some sort of 
stressful life experience in either our childhood or adulthood. And it's about learning how to actually regulate our emotions and how to cope effectively with different forms of stresses so that we can bounce back. And uh, maybe there's a shift in mindset or awareness from these things shouldn't be happening to me. Why do I have to deal with these things versus, okay, these things are happening to me. Now what, you know, how do I, how do I navigate? Yeah. And I think it's also important to um, not feel that we have to be, you know, we have to experience each stressful situation in the most perfect manner. You know, we're always learning. <laughs> yeah, I think that's possible. <laughs> and, and, well, I, could, I even say this sometimes to my daughter. You know, she goes, if she experienced some situation and she didn't feel like she coped with it in the best way, I go, okay, well, how about you think back to how you coped with it and think how can I perhaps deal with that differently next time? Yeah. And. And, and, you know, that's the whole learning process, I guess. Years ago, there was a very popular parenting book that came out called The Blessings of a Skinned Knee. And that the title of that sticks in my mind in, in the context of this discussion. It's like when we, when we fall down, what are the, the, the gifts or the, 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 the kernels, the nuggets that teach us how to get back up? Yes, yeah, exactly right. And how do we learn it? Right. If, if mom or dad are not good at resilience and we then go through these life experiences, it can be taught, right? If we're not taught in the home, we still can learn it. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think we can learn it at any age. I agree. That's the hopefulness yeah. part, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, for those who don't have a happy childhood experience or have a lot of early adverse childhood events, um, that doesn't mean that we can't grow up and won't grow up to be happy, contented, fulfilled, and contributing adults. Oh, absolutely. And there's even evidence that we've even found in other studies where, you know, we know where childhood trauma, it, it impacts the brain. It, you know, there are regions that are actually shown to be impacted. Um, and these particular regions, they are impacted in in individuals who end up developing PTSD. But these regions are also actually impacted in people who have experienced trauma, but yet have remained resilient and have not gone on to develop a mental health um, disorder. And so there's, there's obviously some other mechanism that they are using or there's some sort of compensatory mechanism that despite these alterations, they are able to modulate that process. This is phenomenal. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Professor Justine Gatt. To learn more, please go to nura.edu.au. Go under staff and look up Associate Professor Justine M. Gatt. On Twitter, you can find her at Nura Australia, on Facebook at Neuroscience Research Australia, and on Instagram, Nura Australia. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back, continuing the conversation with Professor Justine Gatt. We're talking about 
Resilience and the Immigrant Experience. And Justine, I want to go back to the conversation we had in the earlier segment where we were talking about resilience and building greater resilience. And I'd like to pivot the conversation now slightly to a research study that you did with migrant youth in six different countries. And the results are fascinating. So please share about this study and how it was done. Yes. So the uh, migrant youth study, it was... um it was a global collaborative study that we conducted um, under the WUN network, which is the Worldwide University Network. And we conducted this across six countries. So there was Australia, New Zealand, Canada, China, South Africa, and the UK. And the point of the study was to actually compare well-being and resilience across different cultures, but also to evaluate the impact of migration um, in youth as a potential stressor. So in the study, we um, compared well-being levels of the adolescents across the different countries, and we actually found that their well-being was similar across the country. Um, but the key difference was that migrants did report a higher average number of traumatic life events in the previous year, more so than non-migrants. But despite this higher trauma exposure, the migrant youth actually reported higher resilience scores, so they were actually better able to adapt to stress effectively. In contrast, they didn't they did demonstrate more difficulties in just getting along with their peers, which is probably not surprising when a child you know moves into a new school environment, possibly a new country with a new language. Um, so what we think could be happening for some reason, these migrant youth were demonstrating just higher resilience. And we don't know if it's because of the family that they came from, or, you know, the family had the financial aid to actually move countries. Um, so there's quite a few factors, um, that we can consider there, but I guess the important thing with that particular study was it was measured only at a single point in time. Yeah. So if we actually assessed, you know, how their peer relationships might have changed over time, I would imagine that a lot of those effects would probably disappear. Oh, I, and I'm wondering if the countries from which these kids migrated was such a difficult place, was such a difficult day-to-day existence that in comparison to contrast and compare that the migration process was less stressful than existing in the conditions of the, from their countries of origin. Yes, there was a lot of variability um, between the countries. So, for example, in China and South Africa, they demonstrate a trend, what we call internal migration internal um, migration, where they're just migrating more so within the country, Um, whereas the youth from Canada in particular and New Zealand were more what we call external migrants, so they're actually moving countries. So there's a bit of a difference depending on um, which form of migration they're actually involved in. And I think... um, Generally speaking, it's actually the internal migrants that are slightly worse off 
in terms of their uh, well-being scores. Interesting. Yeah. And are there is there any insight into what that is about? We didn't um, directly measure it ourselves, but I would imagine that I suppose the potential trauma that they were, I guess, trying to move away from, um, if you're, I guess, still staying within the same country, um, it's very different to, you know, moving countries and completely escaping, um, you know, there might be a potential uh, problem just within that country itself. So, whereas, you know, if you're moving countries, so, for example, the Canadian migrants were actually mostly refugees. So they were um, moving away from, I believe, Iraq or Iran at the time. And so they were moving away from a... From war. A, yeah, a war. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a much different experience to um, perhaps moving within country where you might not be necessarily experiencing war, but the problems you might have experienced from wherever you came from, and it might just be, for example, poverty, you're moving, it's not going to change that situation. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, it, do, it does make sense what you describe. I mean, we know that moving, moving homes, moving residences or places is probably one of the top 10 stressors for anybody. Then you mm-hmm. layer on any sort of internal or external conflict. You know, the reasons why that move is taking place. It's not because you're going to, you're not because it's not because you're moving up to a nicer home. You're moving because there's some adverse experience that catalyzed it in, in this study. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Justine, before we go, I want to uh, ask you to share some insights uh, about ways we might develop resilience and well-being within ourselves and within our communities. You have a lot of research. What are some things that we can do to uh, encourage ourselves or exercise our own minds to uh, build build a better bounce back? Yes, there's so many things we could do. Around our compass well-being scale, it's actually, it's a, it's a framework. So um, each the compass actually has six subscales that we try and promote when we try and understand well-being and resilience. So those six dimensions are composure, so that's how we deal with stress, our own worth, um, mastery, positivity, achievement, and our overall satisfaction with life. And so if you think about those six dimensions, there are different things you can do to promote each of those dimensions. So when we talk about composure, how we deal with stress, are we using adaptive or maladaptive coping strategies to deal with our stressful life experiences every day? And there are, um, for example, you know, very healthy ways to deal with stress. So if you're trying to release tension, you could use um, you know, exercise or yoga rather than getting angry or, um, or you know, having a fight with someone. Yeah, or drinking, exactly. So you know, there's, there's um, so many options there. Um, when you're talking about your own worth, so that's that's your you know your core essence, and it's your you know your self-esteem, and it's it's about what boundaries you have, and are you able to actually preserve those boundaries? Now, with that, it's you know really important to know how to be assertive, and so there's training you can do to promote assertiveness to make sure you can maintain your boundaries with other people and other situations in a healthy manner. 
there's so many things that you could do. And um, one of the things actually that we have been developing in the last couple of years is actually an app to um, put all this together in a nice, neat package. And the app actually measures well-being using the compass scale and then it actually tailors activities based on that person's profile. And so the kind of activities that I just mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of other things that you could do, are incorporated into the app. Fabulous. Let's, um, let's keep going. So the next one is mastery. So that's our self-confidence and our belief in ourselves. So with that, it's about identifying what your strengths and weaknesses are and trying to find ways to boost those. And it's also about stepping out of your comfort zone to actually learn something new and challenging because once you achieve those things, you feel um, more self-confident. Then we have positivity. So that's um, a really nice, easy one. It's our feelings of optimism and happiness. So it's about scheduling in um, fun activities to do into your calendar. Um, It's about using positive reminiscence to actually recall all the good things Um, that you've experienced in your life, having gratitude for those sort of moments. Um, And another thing you could do is acts of kindness. That's another way to promote positivity. Um, The fifth dimension is achievement. So this is about goal striving. And I guess setting goals that are meaningful to you because once you achieve them, um, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. So it's about setting goals that are meaningful and that are achievable within a certain time frame and then meeting them. And then the final one is satisfaction with life. And this is bringing back the importance of our physical health as well as our social support networks. So physical health is about sleep, diet, exercise. What can we do to improve those? Um, it's also about our social networks. So, you know, do we have good supportive relationships around us? Um, and it's also about being mindful and present and the whole practice of gratitude once again. So all of that can help you just feel a sense of satisfaction. And to build resilience, because you've got uh, like an, an artillery of tools, uh, essentially, yeah. that, that helps um, strengthen, uh, strengthen our core, our emotional core and yeah. physical core. Yeah, yeah exactly. I have loved this conversation uh, and I love the the research that you're doing. And I, I would love for you to stay in touch with us and come back again and share because this is fascinating work and gives us insight into how we can do this for ourselves and, and our communities. Oh, I'd love to come back. Yeah, we're on a roll. Thank you. Thank <laughs> so, you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you for being with me. To learn more about Professor Justine Gatt, please go to www.nura.edu.au. Go to staff and then Associate Professor Justine M. Gatt. You can find her on Twitter at Neuro Australia, on Facebook, Neuroscience Research Australia, and on Instagram, Neuro Australia. Thanks again, Justine. Thank you, Asa. Let's take that quick break, and then we'll be back to continue the conversation from survival to success, exploring resilience and the immigrant experience. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're 
We're back, continuing the exploration of resilience and the immigrant experience. My next guests are Lankow and Harlan Lankow. They've written a book together called Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter. But let me give you a little bit of background on both of them. Lankow is the author of Monkey Bridge and The Lotus and the Storm, and most recently of the scholarly work culture and law and development, nurturing positive change. She is a professor of law at the Chapman University School of Law and an internationally recognized expert specializing in international business and trade, international law and development. She has taught at Brooklyn Law School, Duke University School of Law, University of Michigan School of Law, and William and Mary School of Law. Her daughter, Harlan, Margaret Van Cow, graduated from high school in June of 2020 and will be attending UCLA. She was born in Williamsburg, Virginia, and moved to Southern California when she was 10. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, it is it is a pleasure. I was noodling around before our interview today, and I stumbled upon a StoryCorps interview that was broadcast in 2018, but was captured by the two of you in 2012, I believe you told me. And you said that it was the genesis really for the book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother and an American Daughter. I'd love for you to talk about that as a duo and your experience with StoryCorps. StoryCorps interviewed us for a more prolonged period of time, sort of uh, over the themes of war, migration, assimilation, what it means to be an American, so the process of immigration and then Americanization. Uh, and part of it included a segment on the Tet Offensive, which was in 1968, which is a turning point in the war. So that was done in 2012. So in 2018, because it was the 50th anniversary of the fall uh, of, of the Tet Offensive, StoryCorps ran the part that dealt with specifically with the Tet Offensive. And, you know, the Tet Offensive was a, was a very traumatic period for us because it was the first time, at least for people in Saigon, in the capital, who uh, really felt uh, the intensity and the trauma of war because the uh, North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were able to infiltrate Saigon and attack all over the place. So, uh, it was an interview where Harlan asked me some questions about what it was like to grow up during wartime, and I answered. And just by serendipitous coincidence, uh, the editors at Viking also heard it and approached us to explore the possibility of expanding the conversation into a book form further. So that's how it started. But you know, otherwise, it wouldn't—I would not have come up with the idea myself because. I'm not naturally inclined towards the memoir form. It, it's it's very, uh, I've, it's 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 a form that exposes you more. So I wouldn't have thought of it, but when we were approached and Harlan was enthusiastic, we decided to do it together. And it is amazing the story. Uh, talk a little bit about the book's title, "Family in Six Tones." What does that mean? Well, for the Vietnamese language, when you when you write out the letters and you in order to kind of sound it out, every word and some vowels will have different markings on top or around it. There's six basic ones that are used and it, it kind of determines the way that the word is spoken out. It'll completely change the definition of a word. So it's the six tones part is just a very subtle reference to the Vietnamese um, aspect of the 
relationship. The word family, to me, though, it, it kind of implies something bigger, which is interesting because in the book, we only really discuss each other because by the time we wrote it, it was pretty much just the two of us. My father had passed in the beginning of the writing. So by the time the title came about, um, the family was really just the two of us. But as you read it, I think you would notice that the family will also point toward the implied layers of each of us. So a family, um, it can be big, even if there's two people, just in terms of all the layers of the relationship and the soul of both people. And as you said, the resilience, um, it adds to to each person like an onion kind of, so it becomes bigger. So the six tones is just a very subtle like pointer toward how her refugee status kind of impacted the parenting and both of our lives together. You know, Vietnamese has six tones and it's, it's actually uh, the northerners can produce all six. The southerners, and I'm a southerner, there are two tones that are very hard to distinguish even for us. And, um, I think that's why that's why the South, there's a joke that they kind of use slang. You can tell if someone's a northerner, if every word is kind of like precise the way they can say it, whereas a southerner, there's this... They slur. Yeah, they slur, yeah. But, you know, like each word, for example, if you take the word M-A, which is ma, and if you have no tone, it means uh, a ghost. If you go ma, it means mother. If you go ma, it means but. So for wow. six words, there are just like six, you know, for each word, there are a possibility of six different meanings. And if you make even a slight gradation uh, mistake, it means a totally different thing. So I do think it is also like an allusion to how fragile yes. the mother-daughter relationship can be also. Just one thing changes something, especially even writing the book together. It was really a journey for the relationship as well. So the title encapsulates everything. Well, I want to ask you about that because um, you are are a young woman. The The beginning of this book uh, had its origins when you were still just a girl. And it's very unique for a young girl and her mother to embark on a memoir at this point in life. What was that like working on this together? I always wanted to be a writer somehow. I don't know if I wanted to do it as a just as my career completely. But I loved telling stories. It was very therapeutic for me. I never anticipated, though, that the first offer I would get would be for a memoir, just because I, I definitely feel like a memoir is sort of meant to look back on life and on one's career. Not when I was, I mean, I was 15 when the idea was proposed to me. I hadn't even turned 16 yet. So I had no idea where I was even going to start. I didn't want to, I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like my life was too short to to act like I had enough experience to write anything. But I started chronologically my mother kind of did. There was some jumping around just because there's references to different parts of her life. But it's interesting because we did not write it together. I think a lot of people think because it was the two of us, the chapters are separate. And even when we would collaborate, we would get into a lot of arguments over it just because it's so <laughs> personal. They're so personal, you know, like it's not like writing a fiction novel where you can hide behind a character. You, you, you just admit blatantly, like, this is something that happened. And you're opening yourself up to such judgment, especially because it's partially, if you look at it a certain way, you could say it's almost like a parenting book. So, and then you see, because of the way it's written, the impact that the parenting has on the child. So the way that my mother describes it is opening herself up to judgment, which I really admire. And so I would definitely have to be more careful writing about her. Um, it was much more difficult to write about my mother than it was to write about myself. 
Mm. because, you know, I, I knew she would read it. Um, and it's very odd, even now, like even talking on tape, I don't know if I'll be able to listen to this back just because I hate the way my voice sounds on tape. It's like that with writing, like I have problems rereading what I wrote just because I find that I'll criticize myself a lot. It's so hard to read it objectively and like see if it's good or not. So especially during that time of my life, being 15, 16, 17, where I'm already an overthinker. The worst. It's a very (laughs) hard time. The total worst. I always, like, I I told myself going into that stage when I was 15, I was like, you will not pay me a million dollars when I'm 30 to go back to this time of my life. I'm so sick of the hormones. Um, It's hard. But just that on top of the pressure for the book and especially writing it with my mother was challenging. What do you think, Mom? Yeah, we, the first foray, uh, because I didn't know what she, how how she wrote, you know how she writes, what what's her style. Uh, mm. I wanted to read it, and I learned right away that it, that was a big mistake because she was very resistant, and also resistant to recommendations or advice from me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, I'm a, I teach people, and <laughs> they pay me to teach me, and to they value my suggestions, but not the kid at home. Yeah. So I had to let go, you know, I had to let go. So. We, we basically wrote uh, in parallel universes. And when it was done as a first draft, we then went back. And I found that there were parts that Harlan wrote that I really had a hard time that those parts were included yeah. because I, I wasn't going to write that. And I didn't feel like I could make her take those parts out just because I wanted her first writing experience to be about freedom, not about constraint. So I, since she was gonna, she was intent on writing it, I had to deal with it in my section, you know? So in many ways, um, she became the person that framed the book. Uh, And she was more bold than I was in many ways. So she was almost like um, the one that created the trail even though she had many more, many fewer years than I did. She, if she had wrote something, I felt like I had to at least touch upon it, not respond in a, in, in a kind of litigation way, you know, and not like here's a pleading that you put in your complaint and I'm going to now respond in my answering brief, nothing like that. But if it's touched on, you know, whether it's about parenting or about the war or about trauma, um, to tell the full circle of the story, I, I found myself having to write something about it, in, at least as an illusion. And that's that's what st- strikes me about the book, in that there, the, because there are so many layers, right? There is um, Lon's story as a refugee from war. There is your young daughter's story, um, her perspective, but also her experience of loss at a very, very young age, and then also going through the teens, which are challenging even on a best day, right? There, there are so many yes. layers of these parallel stories happening all at once um, that interests me. You know, the dynamic between the two of you, the fact that you uh, would address or Lon would address Harlan's story in her own writing. Harlan, would you address what your mom wrote in yours? Or how would you address Firstly, I think the most fascinating part about writing it for me was the domino effect. As you said, there's so many different aspects. So my favorite thing, this might sound weird, but is to kind of analyze my mom because (laughs) I love being close to her. And I know she's very complicated and I know she's made me into the complicated person I am. If I sit down, I was in, I was in therapy for about two or three years, actually. 
And going there definitely made me realize how my mother's teenage years were so different um, from my own experience. And the difference completely shifted our relationship because it's so hard to relate to each other. Our childhoods were completely different, even though we both grew up in the beginning with like very high privilege. And the difference is I never had to leave this country yeah. to go somewhere else. You never had to leave your, your dog. You never had to witness, yeah. it was it Lon's grandfather, right? You never had yeah. to witness anything like that. Yes. And, but the thing that I did witness was the fallout from her own trauma. I do think that trauma can definitely be passed down upon generations because especially if you're very close, you know, it's, it's, it's like your souls are kind of connected and that's why it's so interesting for me to analyze her. Um, I don't, when she, if she wrote something about me, this might sound bizarre also, but, and it seemed kind of, against what I would have wanted. I actually never, I I don't know if this is, maybe I'm remembering wrong mom, but I don't think I ever picked on it with her just because at that point, when we, I was reading her chapters, we had kind of fought it all out. I had decided at that point, the most interesting thing also for the reader's sake is to just show the difference in stories. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if we, if we, if we planned it out so much and we want it to seem so clean, I don't want it to seem too um, kind of glossy. I think if it, it should be kind of implied that there are differences in the story. That's why there's two people to show a difference. So it's better to leave it. If she says something that's kind of weird to me, but true to her, and I write in my own style and I don't really address it, or I even might like just allude to it slightly, maybe the reader can take away themselves that I disagree with it. And that could be interesting enough, you know? We're going to need to take a break. And when we return, we'll continue the conversation with my guests today, authors Lan Cow and Harlan Margaret Van Cow, to learn more about their book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, An American Daughter. Please visit LanCowAuthor.com on Twitter at LanCowWrites. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the conversation about resilience and the immigrant experience with my guests, Lan Cow and Harlan Lan Cow. Let's get back to it. I want to just focus for a minute, Lan, if I can, on a little bit of your history. You are a professor of law. You have clerked for Judge Constance Baker Motley, the legendary NAACP lawyer who became the first African-American woman to be a federal judge. You have a very different spin on race relations, particularly at this point, race relations in America, than your daughter who was born into 
a very different time and culture than your own. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I came in 1975 uh, to United States, and that was right at the end of the war. And, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of refugees trying to flee Vietnam after the end of the war, even though it was, you know, at the end of the war meant peace, but people fled because they were afraid of living under communism. So all these people arrived in the U.S., you know, and what I learned is that because when I talked to friends of mine who ended up in America in smaller towns, because I ended up right outside Washington, D.C., and there were a lot of Vietnamese refugees who sort of came to D.C. because they thought in Virginia, but it was close to D.C. And they thought it was a, a safe place because it was close to the capital. And when you're in a country at war, being closer to the capital is always better. So they picked a, a Virginia or Maryland, which was close to the capital. The downside I've discovered upon reflection, when you are a minority, uh, as the Vietnamese, of course, are, uh, fleeing a very unpopular war, which Americans were trying to forget. And you're all, quote, swarming into one location. And I compare my experience with somebody who's also a Vietnamese refugee who, you know, ended up, let's say, being in Buffalo or uh, a small part, a small town outside Boston. Their experiences were very different than mine, that they, they encountered much less hostility. And I really think, because I, I, I was, I thought about this a lot throughout the years when we talked to each other. And I think when you are a minority, but, but a sizable minority, like there's a lot of you, I, I think that you're going to encounter more hostility because the majority population probably feels like we're under siege. Resentful. Yeah, there are too many of them. Yeah. But if you are just one, so you, you could be very lonely if you are the only Vietnamese in Dakota. North Dakota, let's say, but you're not a threat, you know, and people can then the best part of the majority can come out because they feel like, oh, you know, we're not under threat. We're still our culture is intact. Nobody's invading us. And we can then be really magnanimous. And it's and, and, the, and the newness is exotic. The new not the newness yeah, is not the, right. sh- the shiny also, object. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. So when I was I was in Virginia with lots, you know, I was the first wave that came. And I encountered quite a bit of hostility and even from teachers, which were devastating to me. And also, you know, because America is framed in terms of black and white, right? So the Asians kind of are sandwiched somewhere. So even when you're talking about race, you're not really incorporating the Asian experience. Um, And especially the Asian experience post-war was very, very bitter. And so it's hard for me to relate a little bit to Harlan's experience, because to me, her experience was was more, uh, you know, standard, quote, I put that in quote, adolescent. And I also had standard adolescent. I also came in and was put into high school right away. So I had adolescent issues, too, but they they were overridden by the uh, not just race, but really a kind of war aftermath of war where the where the u.s lost the war or didn't win the war and it was very bitter it was very hard yes because you know she's she came with a group a large family and a lot of vietnamese landed in virginia but she you know there's so many girls in her family so at the time she was the only one going to that high school and because as she said she's part of like a larger mass of refugees it's not it's a reminder even if it's subconscious um to the Americans that are already there, 
it reminds them of how the war affected America because, you know, Americans, they, they tend to think about how it affects them and their families. And, you know, a lot of the soldiers had from America had been, um, God, what's the word? Mom? Traumatized PTSD. Tra- yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of resentment toward just as the group. So I think that might've been taken out on her because she was by herself too in that high school. And we obviously, you know, when you read, you can tell, I definitely felt a little bit alienated at school, but I don't think it was everyone else's fault. Whereas with my mother, it's objectively because they were racist toward her. My problems in high school, I think I just could never, I never tried hard enough to relate to my peers. I don't want to go so far to say I was antisocial, but I think it. I, my sense of humor was different. Just like the way I dressed was different. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up this fakeness so much. Like if I didn't like somebody, I don't think I could be friends with them. I would just tell them I didn't like them. And that would probably end up (laughs) with me not having as many friends as like the so-called popular group. You know, it's different. Like I, I've always been astonished because in my own friendships, I'll tell people like, you're hurting my feelings. This upsets me. Like, I think we should just not talk anymore. But then I see other girls at the school that I went to and I hear things where like, for example, you know, let's say two girls, one of them is dating someone and then her best friend slept with him and they're still friends. Like they just never address it. They just stay fake somehow. And I could never. So the, I think the reason why we can't relate is also because the whole, our personalities were different too, but also the things that kept her from, I guess, being quote unquote normal was they were out of her control. Whereas I think I could have tried harder, but with that being said, it also means we can't relate to each other's problems so much. Um, a lot of my depression or anxiety would come up from social problems and they would be completely different because I was never head on bullied. It was more just an energy situation for me. Whereas with my mother, sometimes I think about how she was treated in high school and I can barely even talk about it. Um, we both have problems discussing it. I think just because it speaks to the way immigrants back then were treated. Um, obviously there's been an improvement, but especially now in 2020 with the divide between it's, it's just so evident like now more than ever. I I was very upset because I saw on the uh, immigration website that they had removed all references to America being a a nation of immigrants just recently. That that seems so strange to me to do that, you know, because America, I always think, you know, this country is beloved, even though it has a lot of problems it's beloved around the world because, because of its goodness in taking in the flotsam and the jetsam of the world, right? It's not beloved because it has nuclear uh, weapons, because a lot of countries have nuclear weapons, and nobody is trying to flock to them. So to remove that reference just seems so strange to me. You know, it's counterproductive. Because America, we are a nation of immigrants, every single one of us, except the true natives whose land was taken from them. We're all, we're all. And those brought in as slaves. And those brought in as slaves. That's not a very good history. It's a little bit shameful, actually. Yeah, Yeah. it's especially shameful too, because I feel like that's not acknowledged. Yes. (laughs) Like, I I, I don't think, obviously, I mean, you, the idea that we have right now is that, um, you know, you see like someone who looks completely, I guess you could say white, like a white guy, 
And for some reason you put him next to, um, let's say like someone from Pakistan, you think like, okay, the person who's not white is the immigrant, but actually he comes from a line of immigrants also. It just happened to be a little bit further back in history. It's funny that no one seems to acknowledge that and there's nothing wrong with it. I think that's what makes us amazing, but it's odd that nobody seems to recognize it. Harlan, I have a question for you about your connection to your Vietnamese heritage. Where does that live in you? Um, well, I think, I think as I was saying before, I don't know if this part was recorded or not, but the, the passing down of trauma, um, I don't, my, the, the, the piece that I feel of Vietnam isn't what you would expect. I don't think it's necessarily like a cultural thing. Obviously though, I was, I spent some time with my cousins. There's a lot of us, um, my mom's cousins, obviously Vietnamese, they speak Vietnamese, we eat Vietnamese food. But those to me, those are surfacey things because those are things that um, the family controls. Like, okay, we're going to serve only Vietnamese food and we're only going to speak Vietnamese and decorate the house with um, Vietnamese decor and koi fish and ponds. Those, <laughs> those things do remind, you know, those things do remind me that I'm Vietnamese, um, which is weird because I look in the mirror and I realize I never had to face any, I don't look Asian, so I, I'm never going to have to face any racial bias. I've always actually been kind of on the top, even though I am a girl, like I, I, I look completely white and I carry myself. Well, I don't think I've ever had to face what my mom did. So in that sense, I don't, I guess you could say act that way, but the, the values she, she puts down to me, you can tell are clearly Asian. She doesn't say these are the Asian values and they're better than your dad's white side values, but you can tell like, (laughs) She'll say like you, she'll say things like you cannot be lazy like your father or something like that. And, you know, she, it's always been, I mean, I don't know if she knows this, but I definitely think I was preparing for the SAT since I was like five or six. I mean, even, even that's not, a stereotype. Not, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many pictures of me from a tiny age practicing numbers, which yeah. is good. I mean, but, and it got me into UCLA, which is great, but, um, I think what reminds me the most where Vietnam, like where Vietnam really sits is how much I love her because it isn't to me just like, this is my mom, you know, hi mom. Like, we're just going to eat dinner with you overnight. Cause I have to, it's, it's not that I, we, we spend a good time apart. We spend a good time together. And I really do see her as, um, like one of those like Russian nesting dolls, like different layers, because I know she's been through a lot and I feel it because we're so close. And I, you know, I slept in her bed till I was like 10 or 11, which is also a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, so I feel everything. So I think that's where Vietnam is mostly for me. Lon, for you, what does America mean to you? And what do you hope uh, those who are born in America will take away from this book? Those who can't really relate to that thread line, that, that story that you, that you share. Well, as we as we were saying, you know, there are some basic uh, values and wants and hopes that all human beings have, right? Which is to live with dignity and <clears throat> to have freedom. And America means to me, it's a place where we fled and left everything behind yeah. in order to have freedom. So we didn't. It's not like it's not like people fled for safety. You know, freedom might also might not be so safe, but. America represented freedom to me because we fled in order to get freedom. Yeah. Right. So um, I know that there are two sides to America, just like there are two sides to any country. 
um, there, there is the come here side and there's the go away side. But the, the come here side is also very strong. And I love what Bill Clinton said. You know, I, I, I think that's a very important thing. He said, there's nothing wrong with America that what is right with America cannot fix. So we may have things that we still want to fix so that America can fulfill all of its beautiful promises. But what can be fixed is already inside this country, right? The Constitution, American values, the best of America. So I, I feel like our, my, my part of the book, at least, I feel like it's like a letter of love uh, to this country, even if I recognize everything that I wish hadn't happened, that this country hadn't done. Uh, because I think the promise is really important, that it, it has the promise of liberty. Uh, it has the promise of equality. And not every country has those promises. And that's why, you know, I think it's important that people understand that when somebody says something, let's say, about how America can be better, it's done out of love. It's not like this fake flag waving where it's love it or leave it kind of thing. It's more that we know what we left everything to come for. We know this country is beneficent and has a generous heart, too. And that's the part we want to nurture. So it's not like because you're grateful that you should be muzzled. It's the opposite. You know, so I think the immigrants and the refugees who come to America are the ones that really understand what this country is about and what its promises are. Because when you're born in here, you just take everything for granted. Yeah. And we know that none of these things can t be taken for granted and they can be brought out even more in this country. And that's what we hope for. That's what the, we all know, hope for. The immigrants are the ones that really love this country, actually. Maybe, maybe the immigrants are the better Americans, you know. We, because we know what this yes. country is capable of, and we left everything for it. Yes. You know, that's important to realize. Well, the, the contrast heightens the awareness. Everything that you yeah. went through only highlighted, you know, what you were coming to. You know, the, con the, the difference of what you were coming yes. to. yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for spending part of your part of your day with me, both of you, to learn more about this beautiful book, Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother, an American Daughter, and the work of this dynamic mother-daughter duo, Professor Lan Cao and Harlan Margaret Van Cao. Please visit LanCowAuthor.com on Twitter at Lan Cow Writes. Ladies, anytime you want to come back and talk about politics, life, trauma. <laughs> mother-daughter relationships, and on and on. Come and hang out. Thank you so much. Thank Lisa. you so much, Lisa. It's oh, been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Professor Justine Gatt, Lancal, and Harlan Lancal, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, 
and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.